Good afternoon. Oh, yeah, y'all are ready. All right. Um, But before I begin, I just want to thank Pastor Morgan and I want to thank the elders, um, John and Galen, for allowing me to, you know, share God's word with you. It's not something that I take lightly, but I I take it very heavily and seriously. And I also want to thank all of you who've called or texted and just to give me a word of encouragement. I really, really appreciate that. And I want to acknowledge and thank my beautiful, awesome, amazing wife, Brandilyn. We just celebrated five years of marriage on Friday. Yeah. All right, so before I get started, I have one disclaimer, one disclaimer. And that is this. My courses at UT are three hours long. And very often I leave out feeling like three hours wasn't enough time to cover one topic. But today, we ain't got three hours. We got 35 minutes to cover six chapters of Scripture. So for those of you who do not believe in miracles, you finna see one today. Let's pray. Oh, Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you right now, Lord. You know I cannot do this without you, so I thank you for your spirit that helps me and leads and guides me. Father, I thank you that we have eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to perceive and understanding what you are saying to us today. I ask, Father God, that you would touch each and every one of us, Lord God, that we would not leave out of here the same way in which we came in. And so I thank you for your grace and your anointing to share your word in love and in truth. So I give you all the glory all the honor, and all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. amen. So for the last three weeks, we have been in a series on the story and life of Joseph. And Pastor Morgan has been preaching phenomenally these last three weeks over this amazing story. But when I think about the story of Joseph, which I will continue with today, it makes me think about the hit, critically acclaimed movie, the one and only Black Panther. What's so interesting about Black Panther to me is after the movie has finished, after all the credits have run, there are two additional scenes of the film. And one of the scenes is actually a setup or a foreshadowing for a forthcoming Marvel film. And that is so important because just when you think The film is over. That ending is really a setup for a new beginning. And that is so important as we look through the life and story of Joseph. We see him in many places that seems like an ending. But God is orchestrating. He's turning those endings into new beginnings. So I don't know where you are today. Things may seem bad. It seems like you're at an end point. But I've got good news for you based on the life of Joseph. Is that what you think is an end point, God can use it and turn that into a new beginning. So with this in mind, I want us to look at Today, the three R's of Joseph's redemption. The three R's, and I got three points for you. In the tradition of the Mosaic tradition, I got three points, all right? So here's the very first one. The great recognition, which I'll spend the majority of time on. Number two, the great reveal. And number three, 
the great reunion. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you about Genesis 40 and Genesis 41 so we can dive in and start reading Genesis chapter 42. But last week, Pastor Morgan talked about Genesis 39, and in Genesis 39, we see Joseph in prison. We get to Genesis chapter 40, he's still in prison. But now in prison, he meets two people that are out of favor with Pharaoh. On the one hand, he meets the baker. And then on the other hand, he meets the butler slash cupbearer. And Joseph, you know, he's overseeing the prison. And one day, he sees both of them. And when he looks at them, they're sad. They're down. And Joseph's like, what's going on, fellas? What's the deal? They said, we both had dreams last night. And we can't figure out what in the world they mean. Joseph said, well, look, interpretations comes from God, but tell your boy what's going on. Let's see what we can do. So the baker tells Joseph his dream. And Joseph said, your dream means that in three days you're going to be killed. The baker said, I rebuke that in Jesus' name. The cupbearer tells Joseph his story, and Joseph said, you know what's going to happen to you? In three days, you're going to be restored back to favor with Pharaoh. But I just want you to do me one thing. When you get back into favor with Pharaoh, remember your boy. (laughs) Remember your boy when you, because I'm telling you what's going to happen, you know what I'm saying? So three days pass, and exactly what Joseph said is what happened. The baker, he's killed. The cupbearer is restored to favor back with Pharaoh. And Joseph said, cuz, I asked you to just do one thing to remember me. But guess what? The cupbearer forgets about Joseph. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 1 says, two full years had passed. I want to stop and just pause for a moment to say this. When people have forgotten about you, God has remembered you. So right at the moment when he feels like he's forgotten, God remembers him. And guess what happens? Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh has this dream that nobody can figure out. He's calling everybody in Egypt. He's calling the magicians. He's calling the astrologers. He got desperate. Homeboy called Miss Cleo. He called a psychic line, 1-800-PSYCHIC. He called Dr. Phil. He calling everybody, trying to get somebody to interpret his dream. And then the cupbearer says, hold up. There was a Hebrew brother in the prison with us, and he interpreted my dream and the baker's dream And the mugs came to pass just like he said. (laughs) Pharaoh says, go get him. They clean Joseph up. They bring him in front of Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I've been having this dream. Joseph said, look, let me tell you again. Interpretation comes from the Lord, but tell me what you got. Let's see what we can do. And God uses Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And he says, this is what's going to happen. There are going to be seven years of plenty, of prosperity in Egypt. And what you need to do is take a fifth of that and save it because right after those seven years of plenty, there are going to be seven years of severe famine. Pharaoh's like, oh, snap, that's it. That's exactly what's happening. And so what Pharaoh says, you know what? I want you to govern over this. And at that moment, Pharaoh now makes Joseph prime minister. 
The Bible says this happens when he's 30 years old. So now check this out. Overnight, Joseph goes from the prison to prime minister. He's second in command and the only one with higher authority in all of Egypt over Joseph is Pharaoh. Oh, things are getting good for my boy Joseph. Homeboy got married, so Joseph booed up. You know what I'm saying? He starts a family. They have two children. They have two children. I mean children. They have two children. (laughs) But the names of those children are super important. The name of his first son, they name him Manasheth. Manasheth. And in the Hebrew, Manasheth means causing to forget. And he says this in Genesis chapter 41, verse 51. Joseph said, God has made me to forget all of my hardship and all my father's house. And so then they have another child. They have another son, and his name is Ephraim. Ephraim means in the Hebrew, I shall be doubly fruitful. So at this point, Joseph, Joseph, I said Jojo. Joseph is living his best life. You know what I'm saying? He prime minister. He got a, a nice family. You know, he's forgotten about all of his past. You know, he's doubly fruitful. I mean, things are looking good for my man Joseph. But Genesis chapter 42, which we finna read, shows us what happens not when you go looking for your past, but when your past goes looking for you. And we see this happening because the, the famine is so severe in the land that it even impacts Canaan. And Jacob is like, we've got to eat something. And the only place that we can get some food during this time of famine is in Egypt. So he tells his brothers, his children, to go and see Joseph to get some grain, some food to eat. Now, again, here is Joseph. He's living his best life. But now, isn't it like God, right when you're just comfortable, things going well, you know, things are looking good, he comes right there and interrupts your comfort. And he interrupts your comfort because he wants to do something greater through you. So Genesis 42 is where we pick it up. We'll start reading in verse number one. There's 17 verses, so it's pretty long. Verse number one says this. When Jacob found out that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why y'all just sitting here staring at one another? I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Now go down and buy some so we won't starve to death. Verse number Um, three, 10 of Joseph's brothers went to Egypt to buy grain, but Jacob did not send Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin with them. He was afraid that something may happen to him. Now, remember the last time we see, uh, uh, Joseph and Jacob in Genesis 37, it was Jacob who told Joseph to go there and check on his brothers. And so you can imagine that Jacob is feeling like, I had something to do with my son being dead. I'm the one that told him to go, so I'm going to hold on to Benjamin. I'm not letting him go. So that same thing happened to me that happened before. Verse number five, so Jacob's sons joined others from Canaan who are going to Egypt because of the terrible famine. Verse six, 
Since Joseph was governor of Egypt and in charge of selling grain, his brothers came to him and they bowed with their faces to the ground. Verse 7, they did not recognize Joseph, but right away. Everybody say right away. He knew who they were, though he pretended not to know. Instead, he spoke harshly. Everybody say harshly. And asked, where are you coming from? From the land of Canaan, they answered. We've come here to buy grain. Joseph remembered what he had dreamed about them and said, you're spies. You've come, to fi- you've come here to find out where our country is weak. Verse 10, and they said, no, 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 sir, they replied. We're your servants, and we have only come to buy grain. We're honest men, and we've come from the same family. We're not spies. That isn't so, Joseph insisted. You've come here to find out where our country is weak. But they explained, sir, we've come from a family of 12 brothers. The youngest is still with our father in Canaan, and one of our brothers is dead. Joseph replied, It's just like I said, you're spies, and I'm going to find out who you really are. And I swear by the life of the king that you won't leave this place until your youngest brother comes here. Choose one of you to go after your brother while the rest of you stay here in jail. That will show whether you are telling the truth. But if you are lying, I swear by the life of the king that you are spies. Verse 17 said, Joseph kept them all under guard for three days. So Joseph now, he keeps them in jail for three days. But now check this out. In Genesis 41, Joseph said, God has caused me to forget about my hardship. God has caused me to forget about my family. But right away, the Bible says, soon as he sees them, He starts to speak harshly. He gets angry and he's insisting that they're lying and all this other stuff. But now hold up, Joseph. I thought you said you forgot about it. Have you ever had someone do you wrong, you forgive them, and then you see them? (laughs) And then when you see them, all the emotions, all the feelings, all the hurt that you said you have moved on from, they come running right back up at you. That's what's happening to Joseph. But now what's interesting is they weren't the only ones who had done Joseph wrong. We don't have any scripture of Joseph speaking harshly or getting upset with the Midianites who sold him into slavery. We don't have any scripture with Joseph getting upset and saying, you know what, at at Potiphar's wife who, who lied on him and got him thrown into prison. We don't even have scripture of Joseph getting mad at the cupbearer for forgetting about him. They all did Joseph wrong. Why does Joseph get mad at his brothers but not mad at them? That is the question. And I believe that it is this. I believe Joseph's family, particularly his brothers, they represented a hurting place. Or they represented, a synonym for that is a wounded place. This is the place where someone has done you wrong or even a portrayal. This is a place where a situation occurred and it deeply impacted you in a negative way. 
This hurting place, something that you thought was happening. Oh, I know God has blessed me. This is my dream job. I know I'm called to this. And then you get fired. And then it deeply impacts you in, in, a, in a negative way. Oh, I can't understand how this person transitioned before. This doesn't seem right. And this happens, and it negatively impacts you in a deep way. And Joseph, I believe, looks at his brothers, although he said he had forgotten. And when he sees them, he's, he, he's angry. He speaks harshly to them because they represent that hurting place. They represent that wounded place. And so now we see Joseph, now he's moving and functioning out of that place of being hurt, that place of, of being wounded. And so a lot of things ensue. We get to chapter 43, what's happening. Joseph like, look, uh, y'all need to keep, uh, I'm keeping Simeon here. Y'all go back, bring Benjamin back to me since y'all said y'all got another brother. I need to see him. Jacob's like, y'all tripping. I ain't letting Benjamin go to no Egypt because last time I sent one of my sons out, he died. They convinced Jacob to let him bring Benjamin, and we pick it up here in Genesis 43 where Benjamin and Joseph see each other. This first point about the great recognition. Look at this. When Joseph came home, They brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, and they bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well, the old man whom you spoke? Is he still alive? Verse 28. They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes, this is Joseph, and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and he said this, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? Be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother. Everybody say compassion. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and he wept there. Now, it says that when he looks at Benjamin, his compassion grows warm. Now, this word compassion in the Hebrew is the word rakam. And the word rakam in the Hebrew literally means womb. W-O-M-B. So now watch this. This is what I believe happened. Joseph looks at, see, Joseph looks at his brothers, his family, and when he sees them, he lashes out harshly. He's upset because his family, his brothers, they represent this hurting place. They represent this wounding place. But now God does something on the inside of him, deep down, and stirs and grows his compassion. And he looks again at Benjamin. Benjamin represents the family. Benjamin represents the brothers. But instead of seeing hurt and wounds, he he sees a wounded place. He sees a birthing place. So in other words, God wants to take the place where you have been wounded, the place where you have been hurt, and he wants to turn that wounded place into a wounded place. He wants to turn that hurting place into a birthing place. God wants to transform that wounding place into a wounded place and give you life right in the area where you were deeply hurt. 
God wants to touch that area. The one you said that was off limits. The one you said, I, I don't know if I could keep going. The one God is telling you still smiling. Oh, praise the Lord. That deep place, that wounded place, that's what God wants to touch. The same exact place. Wounded places. Hurting places. I know a lot about wounded places and hurting places. You know, today... People, they look at me and say, oh, he's a professor at UT, and that amazing? And he looks too young to really be a professor. So is he really a professor at UT? I am. I am. But things hadn't always been that way. And I remember nine years ago when I was applying to doctoral programs, I went in to talk to two of my professors in my master's program, and I said, oh, could you all please write me a letter of recommendation? Well, they said, well, Terrence... I'm busy right now. Come back next week. I'm like, well, cool. Ain't no thing but a chicken wing. I got time. I come back the next week, and I say, can y'all write me a letter of recommendation? They say, uh, can you come back the next week? All right, so I come back. This is the third week now. I come back, and one of the professors had enough transparency to tell me, you know what, Terrence? I cannot write you a letter of recommendation because I don't think you'll get into the schools you want to get into. I wanted to go to the University of Wisconsin in Madison because they were number one in the area that I wanted to study. And so after she said she didn't think I could get in, I was disappointed, but I wasn't hurt. So after that, I left, and I go and I ask the president of my undergraduate institution, which, by the way, is an HBCU, is a historically black college and university. So I, I saw her in passing one day, and I said, hey, I'm applying to UW. Uh, you think you can write me a letter of recommendation? She said, yeah, just set up some time, come by my office. Now, the reason I asked her to write it, because, number one, she got her Ph.D. from Wisconsin as well, but then, number two, her name is on my diploma. So I figured, you know, you helped produce me. You know, you can show her brother some love. So I set up this meeting, and we knew each other. You know, like um, she would see me. She would say, hey, Terrence, how you doing? So we, I set up this meeting, and I go to see her, and I walk into her big office, majestic. There are these tall windows. There's these amazing, brilliant chandeliers. And I'm, you know, I'm nervous. I had never been in the president's office. You know what I mean? And so I get in there, and she's, we sit down, and then she starts talking. 30 minutes goes by. An hour goes by. An hour and a half goes by. I was sitting there for two hours. At this point, I'm like, you know, either you're going to write it or you ain't. Let me know. (laughs) We get to the end of the two hours. She leans into me, and she says across the table, I can't write you a letter. I lean back. I'm like, why not? She says, well, when you came up here for a convocation a few weeks ago to say some remarks for a professor that was getting an award, I noticed while you were talking that your subjects and your verbs were not in agreement. And I noticed that your grammar, you know, for all intents and purposes, it was jacked up. She said your grammar was, it was not good. And so she leans back and she pulls out a DVD of me speaking. And she said, you need to go and watch this and fix your grammar before you apply to a program. Oh, she walks me to the door, and it took literally everything in me to not bust out crying right in that moment. As soon as I got as far as away from her office as I could, I couldn't hold it anymore, and I started crying. See, the other situation had disappointed me, but this one hurt me. 
And this one got to that hurting place that I now started saying, well, maybe I shouldn't apply. You know what I'm saying? Like, really, I ain't even, you know, I don't, you know, my grades ain't even all that. In high school, I didn't do very well. And I really think I might be an imposter. So you go, and so I started building a case based off of what she said for why I wasn't qualified to do with something that God had already put in my heart. Here's something real quickly. Don't let people talk you out of what God has created you to do. A wounded place, a hurting place, and it hurt so deeply that I held on to that for five years. Every time somebody brought her name, I would say, well, you know, she wouldn't even write me a letter of recommendation. Every time somebody brought school up, well, you know, homegirl, she wouldn't even write me a letter of recommendation. And I got mad when I said, you know, I started clapping my hands. She wouldn't even write me a letter of rec. (laughs) And so finally one day, we're driving back from Detroit to Chicago. Brandy and I are both from Detroit. We lived in Chicago land for a short period of time. And something happened. Go Chicago. And something happened. And for whatever reason, I brought it up for the 149th time. And Brandy like, all right, here. Let's see. All right. All right, my brother. How long has this been this, when did this happen? How long has this been going on? I'm like, for five years. Say, you, you still holding on to that? You upset? I'm like, I ain't upset. <laughs> I ain't even upset. I ain't mad at this. She, she, she was playing hating. You know, I'm going to this. Then I start crying. Then she grabs my hand, said, how long will you be a prisoner of that hurt? How long will you be a prisoner of that pain? She grabbed my hand, and we prayed right there. And God is my witness that God did something deep down on the inside of me, and he, 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 he turned that wounded place into a wounded place, something that I couldn't get over for five years. God did it. And now the beauty of it, though, because, hey, the devil, he, see, he shouldn't even have messed with a child or the king. Here's the good part. Now, in my position as a professor, I meet students every semester who feel like they're not worthy or they feel like they're inadequate or people told them that they don't belong. And so when I see them, I can see myself. And in their wounded place, I can speak life into that wounded place and God turns it into a wounded place. Woo! No, we need your perspective. No, we need you here. Yes, you do belong. Yeah, you're going to make it through. If anybody deserves to be here, you deserve to be here. And so God took that thing that the enemy thought he would take me out. But God did a deep work in me so that he could use it to bless somebody else. So as we move from this first point, yeah, I'm still on the first point. I'm almost... Y'all like, dang, bro, you said not three hours. Thank you, Alvin. The great recognition is not that, that Joseph recognized his brothers, but it's also, I pray that you will stop and pause and allow the Holy Spirit to let you recognize those areas that are deeply hurting where he wants to put his finger in there and he wants to turn it into a birthing place. The great recognition. 
But the story gets even better as we look at the great reveal. So now we see Joseph and his brothers. He's now going to reveal himself to his brothers. They convince Jacob to let Benjamin come back. And now Benjamin comes back to to Egypt. And now Joseph and all the brothers, he's about to reveal himself. Look here, the great reveal. We pick it up here in Genesis chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. But look what he says. Look how he responds. In verse 5, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 6, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there would neither be plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve you, a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So now here, Joseph, the great reveal, is Joseph revealing himself to his brothers. But he also reveals in verse 5 how we should respond to those who have hurt us. The response is not, you hurt me, so I'm hurt, so I'm going to hurt you back. It's not the idea that we decenter one oppressive regime to recenter another oppressive regime because you oppress me. That's not what he's saying here. And he shows us how we are to respond to those who have wounded us, those who have hurt us. And when I think of this, it makes me, it reminds me of this story of how do you respond when people have wounded you. This story. How many of you know what that is? You can shout it out. You can holler, scream. What is that? That's Nelson Mandela's cell on Robben Island. So Nelson Mandela spends 18 of his 27 years incarcerated on Robben Island. He could only get one letter every six months one visitor every six months. It was harsh. It was cruel. And you see that little basket right there? That basket is not a garbage can. That was his toilet. That's where he literally had to go to the bathroom, and it sat right there next to him. And you see that floor? Oh, that's not a floor. That's his bed. And what most people don't know is when Nelson Mandela and several of the folks who were in Robben Island with him 
when they got out, they would come back to Robin Island every year. Oh, get this, get this. They were incarcerated in the most gruesome, most horrific place. And once they get out, they come back every year. Now, what in the world would cause somebody to go back to that place? And they would go back to that place and ask one question. And with this one question, they each had to go around and give an account for how they were going to respond to it. And that one question is this. What are you doing with your freedom? What are you doing with your freedom? And if they could not give an account of how they were using their freedom to dismantle systems and institutions of oppression, if they couldn't give an account of how they were using their freedom to make the world more equitable, if they couldn't give an account of how they were using what they had been given, their freedom for the least of these, they said, it's as if you're still incarcerated. Oh, God. It's as if you're still incarcerated. And so my prayer for you is that you no longer become a prisoner to those wounded places, that you no longer become a prisoner to those hurting places, that God will reveal to you how to respond so that you don't continue to perpetuate that same hurt that you were given, the great reveal. And then the third point, we'll close. The great reunion. So now here is Jacob who finally gets to see his son who he thought was dead for 20-something years. When we see, when we see uh, uh, Joseph in Genesis 37, he's 17. He, ri- he rises the prime minister at 30, so that's 13 years. There's seven years of plenty So that's 20, and then we're two years, at least two years into the famine. So it's 22 years since he's seen his son that he thought was dead. But look at what what, what Jacob was like when we last see him in referencing uh, uh, his son Joseph, Genesis 37. And Jacob mourned for Joseph for a long time. And to show his sorrow, he tore his clothes, and he wore sackcloth. And all of Jacob's children came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go to my grave mourning for my son. So Jacob kept on grieving. So get this. He has been grieving, mourning for 20 years over his son that he thinks is dead. Now look at him when they have this reunion in Goshen. Genesis chapter 46, verses 28 through 30 tells us that Jacob had sent his son Judah ahead of him to ask Jacob to meet them in Goshen. So Joseph got in his chariot and he went to meet his father. And when they met, Joseph hugged his father around the neck and he cried for a long time. Jacob said to Joseph, now that I've seen you and I know you're still alive, I'm ready to die. In the great reunion, yes, it is a father now being reunited with the son that he thought was dead. But get this, for 20-something years, Jacob thought that his son was dead. 
But all the while, God had been working on him. He had been perfecting him. He had been maturing him. So that when the two reunited again, Joseph could be used to preserve the life of Jacob, but his whole posterity and everybody. So the question is, like Jacob, what has God allowed you to give life to and you feel like it's dead? Well, I've got good news for you. That thing may not be dead, but God is working on it. God is maturing it. God is developing it so that when you reunite, it can be used to preserve your life and somebody else's life. So what books have God put in you? What dreams have God put in you? What, what nonprofit organizations or ideas that you thought were dead? God is working on them to bring them back to you. So when he brings them back, it can preserve your life and the life of folks around you. But the good news is this. But like Jacob's son was used to preserve the life of humanity, there is a greater Joseph, and his name is Jesus. He willingly took your hurting place so that he can seat you in a glorious place. That Jesus was thrown into a grave. He conquered death and hell and was raised again to life to preserve your life. So no matter where you are today, Jesus will meet you right in your hurting place. And I pray that you will recognize the beauty of his glory. That he will reveal to you his power to heal your hurting places. And that you will forever remain in union with him. And so my prayer for you today is that the Holy Spirit will illuminate this great recognition, this great reveal, and this great reunion. Thank you. Amen.